Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome, I'm Elaine miller Karras, and welcome to Resiliency Within. My show today will feature the life work of Dr. Peggy Rowe Ward and Dr. Larry Ward. They have brought their shared wisdom of healing to over 50 countries, and their lived experience has given them a wisdom of how to deal with traumas that face many of us every day. The title of today's show is Racism, How to Live Beyond the Trauma. They will address the very important issue of how we are all as world community impacted by racism and how we can heal from the traumas that arise from racism. They have been teaching and practicing with Thich Nhat Hanh since 1991. Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh is a global spiritual leader, poet, and peace activist, revered throughout the world for his powerful teachings and best-selling writings on mindfulness and peace. Thich Nhat Hanh officiated their marriage at Plum Village Monastery in 1994. They received the lamp that means teacher transmission from him at Plum Village in 2001. They co-authored Love's Garden, and this book was featured in the best Buddhist writing of 2009. Peggy and Larry work with CEOs of Fortune 500 programs to integrate cultural diversity, corporate change, and transformation. They have offered mindfulness in different organizations, including Kaiser Permanente Orange County and the American School of Bangkok. And Peggy and Larry also established the Lotus Institute, a nonprofit organization. Let me tell you a little bit about Larry. There's so much to tell you about, about Larry and Peggy, um, but we don't have enough time. I would spend the whole hour just saying what they've done in the world. So you can go to Voice America and you will be able to uh, see more about their biographies um, when this gets posted within about a week or so. Those of us who are listening on Facebook Live. So Larry received his PhD in religious studies with an emphasis in Buddhism in 2015. He considers himself a global citizen. His Dharma name is True Great Sound. I love that true great sound and his voice is a gift, whether it is sharing his poetry, singing or the spoken word. One of the first times I met Larry, um, it was at Peggy's should I say the name 60th birthday 10 years ago since we just both had our birthdays. And he started singing a, a song that stopped the room. And it was one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard in person, sang to another person. And I think there were tears in all of our eyes. Larry, do you remember the song, the name of the song that you sang to, to Peggy on her 60th birthday? Yes. <laughs> you want to say the name of it? It's yeah. from South Pacific, I remember. And I love you so. Oh my gosh! It was just or some enchanted evening and some enchanted evening. It was absolutely beautiful. So anyway, I had to add that piece. Um, it was it was just amazing. But he is also he's a scholar. He's um, a philosopher. He is um, he's so many things. A poet, but he's just written a book that's very important for our country right now. 
American Racial Karma. It was published in 2020. He's going to tell us a little bit more about it. Now, Peggy, his wife, who is, who I, I'm, oh, goodness, I met you first, Larry, then I met Peggy, but she is also so accomplished. She has her, um, her doctorate in adult education and also a master's in counseling psychology. She co-authored Making Friends with Time and is currently completing a book on tools for parents and teachers working with children with mindfulness. But she's a mentor to so many people. She's been a mentor to me personally. Um, but she mentors Buddhist ministers and serves practitioners, practitioners from all faiths in spiritual direction. She really has a wisdom that um, I, I have so much appreciation for that really helps guide people during the most difficult times in their life. Um, you can read more about them, as I said, on Voice America. I would also like to add that they are both community resiliency model teachers. And most recently, they were so kind. They were in Mexico living and they came and greeted me in Mexico City and helped with a most important training for survivors of the earthquake, the Puebla earthquake that happened in 2017. And you know that I have deep appreciation for both of you to volunteer your time and, and be there with us during that time of suffering in Mexico City. So as we start today, um, what is on your mind? And I will start with Peggy. Peggy, I want to start with you and then I'll go to Larry. What is on my mind or what is on my heart and body is... Oh, I love that. <laughs> you know, I love being with you and to get to talk about something that is um, so important to me for our work in the world and for a future to be possible. Thank you, Peggy. And I noticed your hand to your heart. Those of you that um, um, are listening, she just put her hand to her heart, which we know to be um, a very um, common gesture that we've seen all over the world when we talk about something that is deeply meaningful for us. So thank you, Peggy. So now your turn, Larry. Well, what's on my mind is creating a new narrative for how we understand what it means to be a human being. And both in terms of our, our profoundly disturbing racial understanding and uh, our experience of trauma. My, my research now is on how our perception of our biology is so limited that we do not see it at all connected to our psychology or to our sociality. And so when we see mass shootings, we tend to think, oh, that horrible person, but it's, we ignore the fact this doesn't happen everywhere. Yes. This has something to do with where this person lives and how they grew up and how they've been conditioned and what's expected of them. And um, so the, the tragedy, the rolling tragedy uh, that I experience every day always brings me to tears in the morning after my meditation. I find myself always working, not just with my grief, but with the whole of grief that and, all of us are actually living. And Larry, as you say that, I think that's what I've been struck by both you and Peggy, is your incredible compassion to think about these horrible things that happen in the world, but to think about the compassion directed towards the person who maybe perpetrated the crime. It's like what happened to them that brought them to, to that point in their life. 
And so I, and when we talk about that, that question or that comment, I think the other part of this, um, the equation, that I know that you both have had some hardships in your life, um, really some terrible tragedies in your life. And, and so the, the question that I like to start out with is that what, what has helped you? How did you get through those experiences in your life that you faced? And this time, since I started with Peggy last time, I'll start with Larry this time. Um, so, Larry, can you share a little bit of what's, what has helped you through the, through the course of your life? I know we talked about the, we, we've talked personally about the journey, mm-hmm. but what's helped you get through? Um, well, the first thing that's helped me get through is my, my spiritual practice, um, which I've had my whole life, both before and during and continuing through Buddhism as a practice. Um, and so I've, I've, I've always, every day, tried to make sure, in my case, that I have a sense of wellness even before I get out of bed. Before yes. my feet hit the floor, I try to nourish myself through a morning meditation. Then I get out of bed. Then I enjoy having a shower, which I've been in enough places where I didn't. <laughs> where I still appreciate hot water coming out of the wall. (laughs) And I remember people who don't. And so then gratitude um, starts to activate itself in my my heart and mind. And and then I go outside and talk to the hummingbirds and the sparrows and the other birds and, and the plants and trees. And so I stay connected with the natural world. And then the other thing I, I would add, since you've already mentioned it also, is music uh, is a resource for me, all kinds of music from symphonies to bebop. So, um, and that that is very important in terms of moving my energy, keeping my energy from being stuck. Yes. And so I'm also, I'm also I'm struck by what you just said. Um, Because I think this is important when we, you know, this is a show called Resiliency Within, is that you really have to lean into the suffering. And then out of the suffering, what I'm also hearing is the gratitudes that come, is the joy that comes. But it's almost like because one happened, the other can can happen sometimes in even a more amplified way when we've had such such a degree of suffering. So, so thank you so much for that, Larry. And I'm going to ask Peggy and Peggy, I'm going to ask you to see if you can, you have such a lovely voice. We need to hear it a little bit louder. Um, so, um, so, t- so share with us, what has helped you get through? Yeah, I also have a daily practice and I, uh, part of my daily practice is to really also water my vow, my vow to, to live a, a holy life, to, to show up. And that is part of my practice is just checking in, waking up each morning. I smile 24 brand new hours. I vow to look at all being with eyes of love and compassion. Um, But along with what you said to Larry, to me, it's also about naming and acknowledging where I am in the moment, um, which might be happy. It might be sad. It might be tired. It might be grateful. And then watering these other seeds, these resources of strength and, and stability that I have in me that don't ever leave me. So. You know, when you say that, Peggy, I just want to just kind of underscore how important it is that we don't deny the feelings that are real towards us. Sometimes we say, oh, I can't think of that. But sometimes if we just don't look at it for just a moment, 
it's like it can start nipping at us all day long. And so that is one of the ways is to acknowledge that it exists. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with us. It just means that we're so incredibly human. And that can also sometimes help us to go to that next step that could be the awareness of our gratitudes as well. So thank you. Yes. One of the things I, I can keep learning is that, and I'm trying to help people understand is, I am not defined by my trauma. My trauma is an experience of being alive, but it is not a definition of who I am. And so right now I'm, I'm most concerned that it's so easy to get addicted to the wound, to the injury. And we see this in society is the reason I'm bringing this up. And it's kind of like we're caught in woundology. Um, Mm -hmm. And we, we can't identify, can't even hardly see ourselves as unwounded. And all the, and I'm not talking about forgetting about anything. I'm talking about remembering. <laughs> it's, it's, it is remembering. I, I, yeah, and I love what you said, because then it's always about the wound and the trauma. I kind of, I refer to it as that, do you want trauma driving your bus? Exactly. It can be there knowing that it's been part of the foundation of the bus, exactly. but it's no longer, um, it's no longer driving your bus in terms of what is, when I hear compassion and gratitude, I'd certainly want to lean into my traumas, but remember the compassion and gratitude, which can be difficult depending on the nature of the traumas, which is one of the reasons too, I want to kind of get to the next question because I was intrigued by, I was asking you about a question you would want to, you would want me to ask. And you said, what is existential neuro crisis? And I'm going, what in the heck is that? So can you share with us? (laughs) And and Peggy's like pointing to to Larry. So that was his invention, I I imagine. So Uh, no, it was in an academic paper I read. Uh, okay, so tell me about what that means so that we can understand it in a human terms. <laughs> yeah, in human terms, it means our nervous systems are so overwhelmed by our daily experience of living at this moment in history that we are either frozen and numb and overwhelmed with uncertainty and confusion or we are caught in a constant energy battle between flight or fight. And that crisis, most of us are just starting to learn the skills of how to live in another part of our nervous system to activate our ventral, in our vagus nerve. Could you explain what that means? So how would we... What, what does it mean to access the ventral to me, and get into another part of the nervous system? Like, in, how would you describe in that? In training, it is about resourcing ourselves and intensifying our sense of wellness within and identifying those qualities and characteristics within us that empower us, that give us a sense of stability and strength and non-victimhood. Yes. So I think that's important. It's about those things that we cultivate Yes. And how we continue to nourish those yes. that can take us into, and I think this is the important word, empowerment. Yes. Because I think that we get we can get victimized by the traumas, right? And then just feel like it's all it's all trauma, trauma, trauma. How can I ever get through the muck of it? Right. But how do we have those moments and, and what can we do to empower? And I, I want to talk a little bit more about that in, in just a little bit. But I, I think this is so connected to the next question 
is, you know, when you say that um, we believe that every one of us has been traumatized by race in the United States, if you both could address what that means. I'll go first on this. Um, To me, if we turn the news on, um, we can't help but experience energies of trauma. Today, there's been two more violent killings in California, where we live in Carlsbad. We're just an hour from a place where people's babies are pulled out of mother's arms and put in cages. Um, We see every day body bags from COVID. Um, So every, every day there's this opportunity to, to be with this that's confronting our nervous system and our hearts and minds. And to me, that's race. Um, We did a program on, um, the Zen peacemakers on looking at lynching in, in America, in particular working with a community in Florida that was trying to revive the humanity of a person that had been um, lynched. And that was a powerful ritual to be a part of, what it would mean for a community to, to help this person come back to life that had been lynched. And, and so that, 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 that energy of mindfulness, of, of going into the resiliency and then as a community doing something to lift up this person that had been um, lynched and forgotten and buried in a, in a ground without a headstone. So I don't know where I went, but I want to add to that. Um, yes, I... I I think it, I don't want people to be confused about compassion. Compassion, when our house was bombed, um, I, I practiced a long time <laughs> to, to achieve a state of compassion. But when I achieved that state, it did not mean I did not want people held responsible. So there's a lot of confusion about compassion. Compassion is not pity. It is heart accountability for being part of something that is vast and large as our life in all of its connections. And so uh, compassion without justice is not true compassion. No. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, and, and you brought up the bombing that I'm so grateful that, Peggy, you survived. I, I can't remember, Larry, if, if you were actually there when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I was yeah. working in California. Was in That's California. right. So I remember the story. And so I'm just, I mean, this also brings that you're a biracial couple. How has that influenced, I think, your, both of your vistas when you talk about being traumatized by race in the U.S.? Well, I'll start on that one. Um, <laughs> when I first told my parents about Larry and my life um my mom and dad were upset for about a day or so I knew they'd come around and my mom just said you're just gonna have a harder life and we really wish that you wouldn't have a harder life and I really didn't know what that meant I've had so much privilege and I've been so ignorant or innocent that I just didn't know what it's like on a daily level for someone that's of color in our country. Um, so that that was and has been a learning curve for me to have privilege 
um, exposed the way it is for me, something I hadn't seen. Certainly I thought I'd been involved in um, the movement, civil rights movement, uh, peace movement, um, but I still had bypassed um, the very visceral experience of what it's like to be of color in America, a black person in America. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a, a steep learning curve for me. Um, Larry, I used to get so angry when we get pulled over by a cop or have a gun pulled on us or followed by security guards, and I still get that way, and Larry's just had so much more equanimity. Um, and he said, well, I've only had... 30 years of this, and he said, 70. <laughs> you know, and I see that you both are, you know, that, that laugh that I know comes from, you know, just having to live through that. So, Larry, do you have anything you want to add to what Peggy has said? Well, sh- sure. I, I, my laugh, my laughter was natural. Yes, absolutely. Um, not contrived. It never is. Otherwise, I don't laugh. And uh, but the genuineness of it comes from having overcome. Um, I am not intimidated by my trauma because I know how to love my trauma in the sense of take responsibility for it, give it kind attention, help it heal, and allow its energy to turn into the energy of action. And not just reside, as energy resides stuck in my bones. So I love that word, energy of action. So can you know we're we're going to take a break in just a little bit, but I would really love for you to illuminate more about what this energy of action looks like, because I know that you also have just written a new book that was published in 2020, and I'm really intrigued by the by the title of it, America's Racial Karma. So can you give us a, just a little bit of an idea of what we'll be talking more about after the break, about what the, um, the book is about? Um, well, if we have a minute, I'll read a poem as a way. As a okay, bit. great. And then we'll, after the poem, we'll go, to, we'll go to our break. Yes, that sounds perfect. This is from the book. It's called When I Became Currency. When they came for me, I tried to contain my fear and my heartbreak. My bones long for home as I, sick in the bottom of a ship, became dark currency carried over the sea. I was sold and sold again a commodity, an instrument of profit, seduced and sustained by greed, arrogance, and ignorance. Cold and beleaguered in a new land unknown, I tried to forget such horror in my bones, but the looks and whispers even to this day remind me. I am a class of color created by a colonial mind missing its own self-worth. But the dance of my ancestors in my bones have kept me awake and kept me alive. I live beyond such limiting constructs of mind. I am free because I am not confused. I am stardust awake. I am the earth and sky embracing all. I ride the wind with the eagle and the hawk. I flow with the rivers into all oceans. I touch the sun and am touched by the moonlight like all beings. 
I am nature herself, awake, powerful, resilient, generative. I offer the love of my ancestors to your ancestors and the ancestors of all beings. I offer my presence like rain falling on the wise and the unwise, the troubled and the untroubled, the just and the unjust, so that the wounds of time may be healed in the dance of the flow of birth and death. Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm hardly ever speechless. <laughs> I feel that way right now. Not a good thing to be on the radio. <laughs> Larry, that was beautiful. I mean, you know, and I, you know, with that, you know, we talk about the transgenerational trauma and the way you spoke to that in your bones and then bringing it to the present, the present day. Um, thank you. And again, I want people to know the name of this book is America's Racial Karma. And where can people get the book? Um, is they it through the book on Amazon? Amazon. Okay. So I want to make sure. That's the easiest place to get it. Okay. Amazon. It's America's Racial Karma by Dr. Larry Ward. And with that, um, after hearing that beauty, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we will hear more from this most illustrious, wonderful, wise couple about their shared journey and their insights and their wisdom about how we can heal America right now. So we will be back in a moment. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Larry Ward and Peggy Rowe Ward, who are talking to us about their life work. And we are now going to hear a little bit more about your book. And um, can you let us know a little bit more about America's racial karma? Sure. The, the intent of the book was to introduce another way of understanding our racial suffering in America and to look into it deep enough to understand the source of it and to indicate just a little bit about how to begin to practice with transforming the pattern, which is what I mean by karma in this case, the continuing repeating pattern of of racialized suffering, injustice, despair, uh, and trauma that we live in. So, of course, we want to know a little bit about your thoughts about how do we transform that? How, do we, how can we, right now in our history, um, I think we are, I think this could be a second civil rights movement. I think we have an opportunity to, for transformation. So if you can illuminate us a little bit more about what your thinking is about that, Larry. Well, my thinking, to use a phrase attributed to Einstein, is you cannot solve a problem at the same level of energy that created it. And in my view, we keep trying to solve the race problem at the same level of energy that created it. And all that does is recreate the problem. And so it's like rearranging chairs on a ship that has bigger problems than seating arrangements. And this is where we are now at this very moment in the United States. And uh, how I practice is I really want to appreciate uh, two streams of my learning. One is from uh, Krem, and one is from my Buddhist practice. And so Krem and my Buddhist practice intersected very nicely with mindfulness of the body. And and I'm just going to remind people that um, CRIM is the community resiliency model that we've been talking about over the, the last few months in the show. So go ahead. Not, not everybody might not, not know what CRIM is. So right. and what CRIM sure. did for me is it helped me look deeper into the body, into the nervous system, and its role in daily life. And so the nervous system, as many of us know now, is how we experience daily life. And so unless our nervous systems, unless we become more skillful in how to self-regulate, our chances of co-regulation are profoundly diminished. And from a racial point of view, the origins of the country were designed for not having co-regulation. And so if we don't bring that to the present moment, 
in our lived experience as individuals, how can we affect, let's say, the family, the community, the larger social systems that, you know, perpetrate institutional racism? Exactly. Okay. So because I think this is important because some people say, well, you don't need to look at the individual, but I think if we don't look about, if we don't look at each part of the puzzle, from what I'm hearing, yeah. then it's not going to happen because, right. you know, you've shared some lived experiences with me that have just touched me so deeply when we were in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of things from, share, from what you both have shared with me, like you shared previously, Peggy, happen on a regular basis. So that can start chipping away at you as a human being. Correct. So then how do we then walk through life, go to the grocery store, go to 7-Eleven, you know, drive down the road with your, with your family and not get shipped away. So, so if I'm saying this correctly, if we pay attention and start the awareness practice of the body, yes. coupled with the practice, whether it's meditation or prayer, that that can be the, the integration of being more whole. Yes, and the, the, that pra- those practices for me are about intention. What do we intend with these practices? Because the energy of prayer can be used to do harm, just like it can be used to do good. Any methodology is susceptible to our body and our mind in whatever state our body is in, or nervous system in particular, in whatever state our mind is correspondingly in. And so we can wreak havoc on each other without ever recognizing that's what we did. And, and I think this is important. This is, this is an important theme um, for race in America. But, you know, I, I work, I've worked in Northern Ireland where people are of the same race but of different religions. Exactly. And see the same sort of, of um, a really horror that goes back and forth in terms of that vista, that, that distorted view. And then we bring people together and we're in dialogue. And all of a sudden people start to shift a little bit. But exactly. it's not only the dialogue. It's what happens inside of us. Correct. Right. So I think that's what I'm hearing. And I, of course, you know that I, I believe that since I'm one of the developers of the community resiliency model. So that's like, that's like, you know, a wonderful nourishment to my heart and soul when I hear you say But even before I had a chance to be introduced to Krim and, and, and Buddhist practice in a deep way, way back in the sixties, I was, my organization was doing a seminar on racism in American history and and there was about 35 people who were attending and I walked I was a junior I was just learning all this stuff and so I when I walked into the room I knew it wasn't going to work and I just felt that I don't mean it was cognitive I just it was in your body you just was in my body and it was years later after being in California Northridge campus on a conference on a panel with James Lawson, who was the man sent by Martin Luther King to go to India to study nonviolence and to come back with a curriculum to train civil rights workers. And we had a panel, we had a Catholic priest, we had an imam, we had a shaman, we had all these different traditions. And the question was, what is justice? What is a just society in your religion? And after we were all done, James Lawson was last, and he was almost in tears. We've all saying the same thing. Saying the same thing. 
why haven't we realized it? So I took that as a question of meditation. And I'm kind of slow, so it took me a year or so to actually realize what was blocking us. And for me, it is unprocessed trauma. And that unprocessed trauma is in the body. It's in the body. It's in the body. And then we react, like you said, to begin with, in fight or flight or freeze. Um, we've added tending and befriending, but I think that those, those reactions happen and they happen without thinking to the body. And that's where the awareness practice that you say the nervous system becomes so important. So that brings me to my next question. And that is, you know, I think you've been sharing this, both of you have been sharing this. How has your lived experience inspired you to create the work you're passionate about in the world? So I think we've been hearing about some of that lived experience, but I don't know, Peggy, is there anything more you want to say about your lived experience, um, knowing that you had, you had a lot of things happen to you before you met Larry or before you were together? Let's say we were uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh in France when there was a program to help Israel and Palestinian folks um, do better together. And that program was three weeks and the first week, uh, there were, everyone was not to talk together. They, they were everybody was just to practice walking meditation, sitting meditation, lying meditation, and to not engage in conversation. And what we observed was that people couldn't even look at each other. Uh, they absolutely couldn't. And and it was I thought that was so wise that everybody was there just to get grounded and resourced um, through silence and structured breaks and rest. And the second week, people gathered to tell their personal stories. And then the third week, they looked more at how we might be able to, to be together. But that second week, it was very clear that everybody had suffered and that everybody had trauma, been traumatized and that everybody was living in trauma and um, everybody had lost loved ones, everybody. Um, so I, I was thinking of that and then how we think we can get together in a room and talk with somebody who has a face or skin tone that represents the oppressor. Um, it's, it's just not going to happen. But we can do our work and we can get more regulated, we can then engage and have these conversations. So that's kind of where our work is headed is uh, we've been wanting people to do their individual work and we're doing our individual work so that we can do work together. And work in a more systemic way from the individual work. So that that brings me to the next question. Um, You're creating a new wisdom school. So how do you create a wisdom school? What is a wisdom school? Can, can the listeners participate in the wisdom school? Um, tell us more. Well, uh, we met in a special program called the Human Capacity School that was sponsored by Gene Houston and some other great teachers, body-centered teachers, dance teachers, music sound, trance, sensory work, Feldenkrais, I mean, all of these Egyptian spirituality, African dance, I mean, it was three years. And um, we were inspired after that experience to create an alternative or another form of that experience from a Buddhist framework. 
And so we've done three. And four as we did three in Mexico. We've done three of these schools in Mexico. And uh, we intend to do the next one in Mexico, but also we're trying to figure out how it could also be online, but or streamed, what have you. But it is, and we're calling it uh, an all directions wisdom school. And that name's important, both from a Buddhist perspective, it represents the Bodhisattva of compassion, which is a wise being, which is a wise being compassionate being, but wise. And that compassion and wisdom extends to and comes from all directions. So in my mind, and Peggy will have her own ideas about this, in my mind, we want to help people deepen their skills in um, living beyond reactivity to their trauma. We want to help people deepen their skills for uh, excavating their grief uh, instead of carrying it, uh, and to help shift melancholy into joy through ritual and, and dance and art and shamanic practice. And so we really, we've learned a lot since we're old. <laughs> we've, learned, we've learned a lot from a lot of great teachers. And so we want to try to repackage those things. I was just counting. I think between the two of you have more than 140 years of experience. Right. Is that yeah. correct? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we wanted to package those things in a way to share what we've learned to help other people heal, but also heal to transform the world. I am not particularly interested in anybody just healing themselves or improving themselves. Actually, I want to note to myself, do not try to improve yourself too much. And do not try to improve anybody else at all. <laughs> I like that. So, um, <laughs> but you have these multi different, this multimodal, I guess, approach to bringing yeah. all these different forms of expression and learning to help um, come into transformational change. Exactly. And we'll have our indigenous teachers as a part of this process, which we've always had in our schools and uh, so that we're grounded in our ancestral wisdom and not just our modern wisdom alone. When we always begin with the community resiliency model skills because those are foundational that people know how to remind them. And we go through it with students we've seen many times. They love getting the resources intensified in them so that it's, it's bigger and bigger that those positive memory capsules get stronger than the negative memory capsules as we continue to work. So that's because, also in the training. Because you're rewiring the brain. And, you know, I want to say about Peggy, Peggy was with me at the very beginning when we were doing the initial research um, and creating the community resiliency model. So without her by my side, I don't know if I would have survived. And of course, Larry was coming in giving advice at very integral moments that I will always appreciate. But, you know, I want to ask both of you this question because, you know, when I first started working with the word resiliency, I've said this to many of my guests, it wasn't as widely used. And so I know there's certain um, individuals in, in the world that say, I don't like that word. I don't want any, anything to do with the word. I'm just wondering from your perspectives, um, since you mentioned the word resilience in your work, if you could give us your definitions of these words. I'll start because um, one of the things we, we, we teach in um, Mexico, we have before COVID, 
and we teach a lot in Japan and Thailand. And um, both those countries didn't have a word for resilience. And that was really important for my own learning about the word was to, to look at what that means. In Japan, we finally came up with a bamboo. Mm. The bamboo is a symbol of resilience. And I love that one because the bamboo is so rooted and so strong and so flexible at the same time. So those roots go deep. And in Mexico, as you know, it was the zone of well-being. Yes. So to see that, that those have helped me experience and define resiliency because it's this quality that lives in our bones and in our heart and our body. And it's not just a concept that will help us. But Larry can speak. Can I ask you a question that piggybacks on that and then I'll go to Larry? Is that someone said to me recently that they were tired of hearing the word resilient because they were tired that they were tired of, of having to lean into their strength because they've been leaning into their strength for too long. And that the word resilience didn't have um, any concept for her that was surrounded by being soft, being vulnerable. And that's certainly, I actually experience as being soft and vulnerable, but I'm just wondering what your um, perception of that would be and how you've worked with, you know, these concepts, um, Peggy, with having been probably- some of the origins. <laughs> I'd probably name that um, early on and probably do because I have found that the, that it requires tenderness and vulnerability yes. to do the deep work. And I've really learned the value of the safety. And safety to me is critical for us to do our transformational work. So we have to figure out how to be tender and vulnerable with our resilience and then also to know that right now, my resilient strength is rest. My resilient strength right now is just to play on the playground. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh said when he first came to the United States, he was overwhelmed with the violence in our country. And he said, I had to go to the playground every afternoon. And he had to play with children every day. So I always think of my teacher in that regard, too, of balancing. That's part of the resilience is to know when to turn the TV off when to not watch the news. We don't watch it before bed. We do watch it in the morning. With democracy now, I give her a plug. <laughs> All right, that's, but see, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I think that's important because from your strength comes the acknowledgement that you can be soft and vulnerable. So strength doesn't mean like you're, because you know, with, with the uh, bamboo, the bamboo kind of is flexible and it's so deeply rooted that if you ever try to get, rid of bamboo in your garden and it keeps coming back. We did. So I think that's, that's a really, that's a great metaphor. So now I'm going to ask, you know, Larry, his per- perception of the word and any comments, about what um, Peggy has said. Well, I, I think the first thing is to understand the social context in which the word is being used. And in the U S everything is market material. Every word, every symbol, every statue gets popularized and disseminated uh, as, as marketing. And so part of the reaction um, people of color in particular might have is, I am, I, am, I am tired of being told what I can do for myself from the market point of view. I think the other thing is uh, my breakthrough 
in understanding, quote unquote, the word resilience from a trauma perspective is uh, every Sunday at uh, our little church, Missionary Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio, around 1130, and the choir was singing and my mother would break out and dance. We could time it. My sister would lean over and go, she's about to blow. <laughs> and and I, I realized she was processing trauma. She was activating her body and bones to remember how to be whole by movement and through movement and through song and through tears. And so I think part of the misunderstanding is that resilience means something superficial. And in our Protestant-oriented, perfection-driven paradigm, that means I can never be resilient enough. Mm -hmm. I'm going to always fail at uh, living up to the high standard of of resilience. And um, so I I now see resilience as a body-centered experience, which I think is what it we meant by in the beginning. Yes. <laughs> That's what we meant. <laughs> That's what we meant. And, and, and not a moral framework. Not a moral framework, yeah. And, but really, in art and in music, as I look back through African-American history, um, I, I think the other thing that people are concerned about is that people think, oh, I have to have suffered to be resilient. And 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 then some people take that to mean okay, more suffering is okay because you'll be more resilient. And <laughs> we don't want that. And so resilience, suffering does not equal resilience. Because all of us suffer, but not all of us find resilience in terms of being able to stay in touch with the vitality and wholeness of our human life. And most of the world doesn't have that chance. So the vitality and wholeness of our human life. So I have a question for you. Do you think it's possible that we can lean into that even if um, we live, let's say, in certain parts of the world where um, it may be difficult? I mean, you know, there's difficulty of food insecurity and things like that. Those are so primary but I think of, you know, being in Haiti or parts of Africa, Nepal, uh-huh. where there were people that didn't have a lot of what we would call material right. things from a Western perspective, yet they had so much that um, I had to say that I go, can I just bottle that and take it home with me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, maybe well, I did. I don't uh, know. That might be part of my human quality. Yeah. It's a human quality, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I think that that bears to... Um, Almost every country I've been to, at some point, someone will tell me from the country that they're the happiest country on the planet. And I just, I love that because if we had, you know, every country felt that way, how could that might, you know, change the world? Exactly. You know, um, as we're getting ready to end today, I'm, I'm hoping that you each will maybe say a parting word about what you think is important for our listeners to remember in, in their daily life as they face whatever obstacles come their way with your incredible shared experience of wisdom. So, um, Larry, do you want to start? Sure. For, for me, it is from a nervous system perspective that remembering that our nervous system is designed to give attention to and to recognize 
that which is negative over that which is positive in this experience. And so the practice for me of nourishing myself, nourishing my well-being, is making sure every day I am nourishing, I am resourcing the, the 10,000 qualities of goodness I have inside of myself. And therefore, I am not intimidated by trauma, suffering, racism, sexism, whatever the ism, whatever the ism may be, because I am a whole human being. And, and, and you acknowledge that and you nourish that every single day. Every day. And how about for you, Peggy? I'm reminded of what Tignahan said to us when we had tea with him after our house was bombed. He was silent with us and I just streamed tears for about 15 minutes. And then he said, I'm sorry that happened. And he didn't say anything more for another 15 minutes. He said, and it did. Mm. And so that to me is about being tender with ourselves and kind if something happens that's traumatic. I had a call from a girlfriend this weekend that's Jamaican that had a, a unconscious racial bias experience. It was Larry had a gun pulled on him in the grocery store parking lot a week ago. So to be tender with ourselves, I'm sorry that happened and and it did. And what am I going to do? What do I need to look inside to see how much nourishment I need or how much resourcing I need to do? And, and then to put our attention back into what our work in the world is going to be so that this can change. Mm-hmm. And we are committed to believing that we are at a point when we could go either way. There's a race war going on right now. There's a war here going on. We can put our direction into goodness. We can put our direction into our spiritual life. But we have to start with, ouch. You know, that's my word. Ouch. You know, and as as we're in our few moments together, what I heard from both of you was deep listening, not only of others, but for what is inside of us, the deep listening, this inner standing. And I'm going to just say, um, if you want to reach Peggy and Larry to learn more about their work, go to www.thelotusinstitute.org. You want to repeat it one more time? Go ahead, Larry, in that great voice of yours. www.thelotusinstitute.org. And thank you from the bottom of my heart, my dear friends. I hope to see you both very soon. I'm going to travel down to you. And and our listeners, we will see you again, hear hear from you again as well, I hope. And remember the, the wise words to pay attention, that inner awareness, how important that is. And remember, there's the iChill app that can help remind you of how to cultivate that inner knowing. And remember what else is true, just like what we heard today. I loved when Larry said about going outside and listening to the birds and remembering nature. Maybe you can do a little bit of that today for yourself and during the week. Thank you so much, Larry and Peggy. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.
Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.